Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, your co-hosts for this show. And I just want to say, first of all, thank you for being with us on this show. We really have a great time being able to connect with you and answer your questions and really be able to provide insight and wisdom so that you can make financial decisions. So today we are continuing on with our series of answering your money questions. So answers to your money questions. And this is something that we anticipated doing all in one episode. We had so many questions that kind of almost was a backlog that we ended up breaking this into three episodes. And so today we're diving into a few more of your audience questions. So if you are listening live today and you want to jump in and ask a question of your own, please feel free to do that. We also will be doing this type of a show in a very similar format going into the future interspersed with some of our other content with great guests, and then also just some specific topics that we answer in your financial space as well. So good morning, Bruce. Thank you for being here. Yes, this is, uh, I've been getting a lot of positive comments from people that have listened to these types of question and answer shows. So I think it's, uh, we should continue this. Very good. Well, we are thankful to have had your questions. And you know what I think is really interesting about questions, Bruce, and I think we probably have said this on the, the other shows as well, but we all really do have questions. And I think the the goal is for all of us to continue growing and continuing to add to our knowledge and add to the wisdom that we have as you differentiated knowledge from wisdom or information from wisdom, but being able to have wisdom that really guides our life. And that means we're continuing to expand our knowledge and continuing to act on new information, continuing to maybe pivot or micro adjust the the things that we were doing financially to get better and better and better. And what's really interesting is we hear questions coming from that space of forward thinking and open-mindedness and continuing to expand your wisdom. And we are just really appreciative of those questions. We don't as much appreciate the questions that are this debate or let's, uh, you know, argue. We're not really into arguing. Uh, I don't know if you've caught that from the the last, uh, I don't know, four years of, of shows that we've done so far, but we really are not looking for arguments or picking fights, but we really want to continue to grow and up-level our knowledge and wisdom and continue to share that with you. So please join us for this great call. Podcast. It's not really a call. It's a podcast. All right. So today we're continuing on. We had a question from Bruce. We can start with um, the one at the top and just kind of work our way down. This one's a shorter one, but kind of a big question as well. So this was asked on a video that we did on IULs, which is indexed universal life. And the question was, okay, so explain to me why whole life is better. And he means better than IULs because he was commenting on the IUL video. And do you have a video on whole life? This is from Fred on YouTube. Uh, Bruce, before we jump in, I just want to say thank you for asking that question. And what's really interesting is the platform of YouTube allows many times somebody may see one particular video and not realize the additional content that we have, or even maybe our position that we're coming from. 
And so if you've been listening for a long time, you might say, well, of course they talk about you whole life. Of course you talk about whole life all the time. But today we're going to answer this question specifically because Fred, for whatever reason, may have just seen that one video and either subscribed and saw the rest of our content or maybe didn't and may not know that we have a whole host of additional information about whole life insurance. And so, of course, whenever we get the questions, we answer them on that channel as well. So if you've commented on YouTube, we'll, we're answering and we've already answered this with a comment on your YouTube question, but we also want to answer it in this format. So uh, Bruce, let's go ahead and dive into this big question. Well, it really comes down to guarantees. Uh, it's very simple to look at this. If you get an IUL illustration and you get a whole life illustration, the IUL illustration will be at least, and I'm not exaggerating, the IUL illustration will be at least twice as long, and in most cases, 150% longer than the whole life. And the reason it has to be like that is because they have to explain uh, and disclose all the risk that you're taking with an I, IUL policy. Mm-hmm. And when, that, when you're shifting the risk, when you're shifting the risk from the insurance company more towards you, then if you take policy loans, then you are also shifting the risk and the IUL more towards you. And here's, the, and here's the reason why. It is often stated, and I don't even think people understand when they state this, that you, when you have an IUL, you get the best of the upside and you cannot lose any money. And that is not entirely true. Mm-hmm. Um, you it do sounds not get, great in marketing. Right. It's not, it's, you don't get the best of the upside because the, the upsides are, are capped mm-hmm. or they have a spread or they have a participation rate. So you do get a, a portion of the upside and you cannot lose money due to a downturn in the stock market. However, your account balance can continue to go down. And this is the part that people do not understand is that if you do if you have your account and it does not perform the way that <clears throat> the way that they're predicting in the illustrations and if you look at it the illustrations say hypothetical examples do not expect this to illustrate the way it will be in the future they are not guaranteed um, very similar to what a whole life illustration will say about the dividends. It will say the dividends are not guaranteed. However, mm-hmm. the difference here is, is that uh, whole life insurance companies uh, have paid a dividend for well over 115 years, in some cases, 150 years, some cases, 175 years. They've never not paid a dividend. Where the stock market has had down years where the crediting would be zero <clears throat> on a whole, on a IUL. Mm-hmm. When that happens, and if that happens in a, too many times in a row, what will happen is there will, they will increase the charges because they have to take options against the indexes uh, if they go down. And it mm-hmm. says right there in the illustration that they're allowed to, to charge more for this. And that, will, that, along with your cost of insurance, will make your, balance, your account balance go down, mm-hmm. even though it's not going down because of the stock market. So therefore, so if you're, yeah. So if you're hearing what Bruce is saying, your growth 
may not go down, but you still can have additional costs that are growing faster than the rate of growth in the policy, meaning that you do end up actually going backwards. Well, correct, because the rate of growth in the policy is not guaranteed. It's it's based upon the index. Now, some of them have, I should say a lot of them have a 1% guarantee uh, growth, but that's not much compared to the cost uh, of borrowing against against the, uh, the cash value. So if it's human nature. I've seen it for since the 80s. It's human nature that people are going to... Uh, plan on paying loans back from your policy, no matter if it's a, a whole life or no matter if it's a VUL, an IUL, a UL. Uh, but people have a tendency not to do that. Um, I'm not saying all people, and we encourage it. But if you do not, especially in an IUL, if you do not do it, then you are uh, really putting yourself at risk at the policy uh, actually lapsing. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying IUL is bad for everything. I I believe IUL is good for retirement income in the future. If you understand the risk and if you understand that you have to max fund it, you have to fund the entire thing, you know, uh, throughout the capitalization period, where in whole life, you have flexibility of the funding. You have flexibility in the fund funding in IUL because I can hear all the IUL people listening to the show. They, we have flexibility in IUL too. Yes, you do. But if you're going to then take policy loans to actually pay for retirement income, then you better have max funded it or it, uh, there's a possibility that it will lapse. So this is a very common thing. It's very easy. Uh, IULs illustrate wonderfully uh, versus a whole a whole life, because people get enamored with this six percent or five point four five percent rate of return that's uninterrupted, um, and they go and they go back with these historicals and they say, well, we looked at the last ten years or we looked at the last uh, ten of the last twenty years, and we pr- we're trying to predict the future, and that's the problem. They're still just predicting the future, mm. so it's not a bad. It's not a bad product. It's just a strategy that we do not endorse using for infinite banking concept. I'm going to leave it there. I mean, I think what's really interesting is that if you're wanting to use infinite banking, that does need to be a whole life insurance policy. And that is properly designed, which is the right ratios to make sure that you have early growth but you also have a long-term growth as well. So you have early cash value and you're not giving up the long-term growth of that policy. So for infinite banking, Nelson Nash said, it's whole life insurance that we use. Nelson, no, you say, if you want to mess with the stock market, go mess with the stock market. If you want guarantees, just stay in whole life. Don't, don't actually blend the two. And that's what people are trying to do. So if you want more information on whole life insurance, we have a whole host of resources available for you. I, I mean, we have probably close to a hundred um, articles, podcasts. You can get at themoneyadvantage.com slash blog. That will take you to all of our work that we've done really in this space where we do talk about life insurance and whole life insurance specifically a lot. Um, there's one particular article that is um, what kind of policy. And I think that's what it's called. It has a picture of 
ice cream. And yes, it's called privatized banking. What kind of policy do you use? It's back from November 12th of 2018. I would encourage you to go check out that particular podcast and the blog associated with it. And that really gives you a big picture viewpoint of exactly why we talk about the guarantees of whole life insurance so much and why they're so valuable for using for infinite banking. All right, Bruce, that was great. Let's go ahead and go on to the next question. So this is from Araldo on YouTube. Hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. He says, I'm confused about the OPM. In real estate, when you use OPM as a loan, your cash in the bank is readily accessible. For example, let's say I have $100,000 in the bank and I borrow $100,000 to buy a property instead of paying cash. I've borrowed $100,000 and still have access to $100,000 to buy another identical property for cash, access to $200,000 total. But with a policy loan, if my cash value is $100,000, let's say the insurance company collateralizes my $100,000 cash value and they lend me $100,000, I can't go back to my policy and cash out my $100,000 of cash value since it's collateralized. This means I have access to only $100,000, not $200,000 like in the first scenario. Am I mistaken? I'd like to be corrected if I'm thinking about this incorrectly. So I will say what's really, really interesting about this is, again, the level of detail I like in the question. And I really like that you're thinking this through fully to the, the greatest ability that we usually can think about money. What I do want to point out really carefully here, though, is if you have $100,000 in the bank and you go take an unsecured loan with no collateral backing, and it's not secured against this $100,000 of cash value, or of cash in the bank, then essentially I would say, yes, you are creating another other people's money, another hundred thousand. Now you do have access to the same cash in the bank plus the hundred thousand dollars of a loan that you got. So yes, you're you've doubled the money supply that you now have access to. If you're using infinite banking and you have a hundred thousand dollars of cash value and you collateralize that cash value, so you're taking a loan from the life insurance company against the cash value in your policy, you are placing a lien against the cash value and tying up its ability to be used for anything else. Yes, that is true. You're getting access to $100,000 of the insurance company's money. Yours is staying in the cash value, if you will. You're trading your access, essentially. You are not getting an additional $100,000. You are getting access to $100,000 secured against your cash value. But here's the cool thing your money continues to grow uninterrupted. What I would challenge you to think about is that if you are going to have the money in the bank, it would be comparable to saying, let me secure a loan against the cash that's in the bank, because that's more true apples to apples comparison for what we're doing in a life insurance policy. The reason you would secure or collateralize a loan against cash you already have is that you're going to have better interest rate. You're going to have um, the bank will lower the interest rate that they charge because it's less risky. They're not um, they're not having to secure that. They have a guarantee that they can have access to something if you default on the loan. And now granted, if we throw in, maybe you're using that for a property, then we can talk about, well, the property is collateral for the loan as well. So Bruce, I'm sure you have some additional thoughts on that, but I just wanted to point out that Yes, we are securing a loan against the cash value you have, meaning no, you don't have access to use it for something else, but it still keeps growing. Your cash value, even though you're using the insurance company's money somewhere else, 
and securing that against your cash value in the policy, your cash value keeps growing with it, dividends and interest. Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> at the sound uh, or at the at the risk of sounding too flippant, um, if you have a hundred grand in a bank and you go get an, uh, a loan for a hundred grand, you could do the same thing with a cash value life insurance policy. So you got a hundred dollar, a hundred thousand dollars of cash value. You you could still just go get another loan, and people do it other every day to go buy another rental property with the bank, and you still have your hundred thousand dollars of cash value. It's no mm-hmm. different than what you have right now. It's just where are you storing the money? Good so point. as Rachel always already said, is you know, um, yes, you have $100,000 of cash in the bank, but you could have $100,000 of cash um, at the life insurance company. The difference is, as Rachel said, you take the $100,000 in the bank and go use it to purchase another property. You've lost future interest, which is very small anyway from the bank. Mm-hmm. If, if you have $100,000 of cash value, in your life insurance policy and you, and you take an, a borrow against that cash value, then your 100,000 is still earning interest and dividends, unlike the money you took out of the bank to go, you're taking another policy loan or a policy loan against the cash value and go buy another, another rental property. This is classic what Nelson used to say, who's being the bank? Mm-hmm. That's, that's all it comes down to. If you wanna be the bank, for yourself, then store your money for your future rental properties in your cash value, and then pay yourself back. And if you want to pay more interest back, that that's more PUAs. We could talk about that later. Um, but really, it's it just comes down to where you're store you're storing your money, and that's what I don't think the the listener understands is there's no difference. Store store it in the bank. Store it in your life insurance policy. You can still get a loan uh, outside of both of those to buy a piece of rental property, and you still got a hundred grand in both your life insurance or the bank. There's really no difference about the storage. It's just are you going to get uninterrupted compound growth in the bank if you take out the hundred thousand dollars? No. Or are you going to get an uninterrupted compound growth if you take a loan against your cash value? Yes. That's. I think it's pretty simple. But if you don't do this every day then I can see why it's not that simple. Right, right. And so the other thing is that if we just look at where you're storing the cash separate from a loan that you're taking, bank versus life insurance, we like to think in terms of safety, liquidity, and growth. And we could say the bank has this uh, appearance and this concept that we all think of as very, very safe. But Bruce, I mean, it's guaranteed by the FDIC insurance, but that's up to what, $200,000? If your account goes under, so mm-hmm. what two hundred fifty thousand? So then you have the life insurance company that fails much less frequently and has much less frequently than the bank, I should say, historically, and has had a lot of history and track record of surviving through many economic downturns. So you look at the safety factor. Life insurance is backed by the state guarantee fund. Is that how it's called? Yeah. The state guaranteed fund. Yes. Every state has a state guaranteed fund. And so that backs the insurance company in case the company were to go under, but usually they are not just, they don't just go under and lose um, your 
insureds money. Usually they're bought out by another company. And then you can also look at the dollar reserves. And Bruce, you say this all the time, but in the bank, you have, what is it? Maybe 10%. Maybe 10% reserves, Maybe. meaning that if you have $100,000 and you go to get out your $100,000 from the bank, you're probably not going to necessarily be able to access all of that. And if you are, everyone who has their cash with the bank would not go be able to draw, would not be able to go draw out all of their cash deposits all at the same time because the reserves would not support that. With a life insurance company, there is more than dollar for dollar reserves, meaning that all of the cash value has a dollar in reserves at the insurance company that could back that up, correct? Correct. And just try it sometime with a, with a modest number. Just go to the bank and say, I'd like to take out $5,000 of cash and see what happens. They're probably going to tell you, we can't do that today. You have to order that. It'll be two days before we can get you the cash. So, Which that then brings you over into the liquidity issue. So we think about, we want money readily liquid. We can convert into cash. The bank, usually we think of, we can convert it right away. And generally we can, unless it's a large amount, like you're saying. In the life insurance company, you have the ability to convert to cash because you can get a loan against your cash value. And that usually takes a not very long. It's a guaranteed process that you have access to as a contractual right, being a policy owner, but that can take maybe up to a week or so. Don't they say that you need to allow seven to 10 business days? It depends on the company, but yeah, that's that's acceptable. And they usually have provided historically faster than that. So safety and liquidity. And then we talk about growth and we know you're not getting much growth in a bank savings account. The growth rate that we see inside of a life insurance policy if you look over a span of maybe 30 years, you're looking long-term, you're figuring out what rate of return would have been required to be applied to the deposits or the, you can't call them deposits, the uh, premiums that are paid into the policy compared to the cash value. And over a long period of time, you're seeing about three to 5% growth rate per year. And that is after tax. So we're just looking at a better place to get better safety, liquidity, and growth versus the bank. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's go into this next question. This is from Dale. This was a question actually on LinkedIn. I'm a new fan and somewhat 201-er on IBC. Just some context here. We did a series on IBC 201 that was kind of a little bit more advanced. And the reason we did that was because often we are talking about the benefits of using infinite banking in the first place, but sometimes people are already using infinite banking and want to take it to the next level. So we did a series on insuring kids and grandkids or using multiple policies and what that really looks like when you're ready to add additional policies, not just the first one in infinite banking. So more on my story later. This is back to Dale's question. Y'all's verbal and visual descriptions on the IBC concept are by far stellar compared to what I've been reviewed. Sorry, my reading is terrible today. To what I've reviewed. And he says, many, many books and videos. My initial understanding of dividends repayment of premiums is a single annual event, but I don't get how folks are saying CV, he means cash value, earns interest. There's one CFP that constantly says 4% is earned on CV or cash value. Is this true? I thought dividends were the only tax-free capital gain. Look forward to your unique explanation of where my confusion occurs. So I love the position that Dale is coming from in this question. And, um, we did answer him directly, but we'd love to answer this uh, today as well. So, Bruce, do you want to take this one? You know, this is this is um, this comes down to um, 
education doesn't necessarily mean you, you have all the answers. So, <laughs> excuse me, here's a CFP <clears throat> that has supposedly the highest training of all, all financial situations and is making a partial truth, uh, probably because maybe they know too much and they, they don't know how to explain it properly because they know too much. Mm. But it is true with every life insurance company that has a whole life product that I know of, the gross, the gross, and this is the key here, the gross interest that they guarantee is 4% growth on your money. But that is a gross. Then they take, then they take the cost of insurance and the, co- the other costs associated with running the company out of that particular 4% gross before they apply it. Now, that is proprietary with every company, so we cannot tell you exactly how they do it or what, they, or what uh, uh, formulas they use. That, ad- that growth actually gets added to your policy every day. It's, it's a fun thing to do. You can actually look at your cash value growing every day. And uh, then once a year, the life insurance company declares a dividend. And a dividend is simply excess profits. And this is why you'll hear some people say, um, well, all they're doing is returning your premium. That's why it's not taxable. And in some extent, uh, for the IRS, that's true. That's what they're doing. But what they did was they didn't know that they were going to have, you know, a good year, both with lower mortality, lower business expenses, and greater returns on your money, the investment committee of the particular life insurance company. It's the same thing. I've said this over and over on podcasts. It's the same thing that happens when UPS declares a dividend or AT&T declares a dividend or Coca-Cola declares a dividend. So as a, for you people that are just listening, I'm holding up my phone right now, which is an AT&T iPhone. And one of the biggest problems is people say, well, they're just giving your money back. They overcharged you for the, for the premium. And, and so they're just giving your own money back. Well, that'd be the same thing as saying, well, AT&T charge you too much for their service every month. And now they're giving in part of it back in the form of a dividend to their stockholders, which would be true, except it's kind of ridiculous because part of that is the returns they're getting with the mm-hmm. company. The company's doing a better job on certain at certain times, making more money, so they're sharing the wealth. It's the same thing. So this is a, and then when they declare that dividend, the four percent gross dividend is actually included in the overall dividend. So the dividend may be five and a half percent, four percent, that means they gave a one and a half percent dividend on top of the four percent technically, but that's not the way they look at it. They look at it, hey, we're guaranteeing you four percent of growth because we we have historicals and we can guarantee that gross growth. And then if, if we do a little bit better, then we're going to give you a little bit more and then the dividend is applied at the end. And as you already mentioned, Rachel, historically, the growth on these are anywhere between 3 to 5%, depending on your age, health, and habits, and how long you, you put the money into the policy. So great question. 
Mm, uh, I can, yeah. Dividends are confusing. There's no doubt about it. And they're proprietary. So you cannot, you cannot look at them. And that also gives some mystery to it. So I understand you can extrapolate though, and I, but I understand the, the uh, listeners comments. Absolutely. And I think um, what is really interesting is that even with no dividend, your cash value still is going to grow because of that guaranteed yes. interest. And as Bruce has said earlier in the show today as well, dividends are not guaranteed, but they are highly anticipated and expected. And the reason is that they've been paid with the companies we work with every single year through the worst of times, through things like the Great Depression. Now, I do want to point out one other piece here, and that's because um, Dale had said, I thought dividends were the only tax-free capital gain. I do want to point out that tax-free refers more to, and Bruce, you can add comment on top of this as well, but tax-free applies more to how you access and use the money. So the growth is happening inside of the policy. The way you access that is through a withdrawal or a loan or having the payout of the death benefit. So if you access it through a policy loan, the first one I mentioned, well, you are going to not pay tax on the cash that you access through a policy loan. And that is borrowing the insurance company's money against your cash value. If you access through a withdrawal, then you're taking out your actual cash value and you can certainly do that as well. The situation there is that everything you've paid in premium, say you've paid $100,000 of premium in and your your cash value is $120,000, you will now pay tax on that $20,000 of gain if you're withdrawing your cash value. Bruce, did I say that correctly? Correct. Yeah. Nelson actually did uh, during one of the think tanks one year showing his own personal where he withdrew from his policy up to the cost basis. And that's what you're talking about. And then he had the, and we actually endorse this a lot of times that when people are using this for tax-free retirement, we say, well, let's withdraw up to your cost basis, which is the amount of premium that you personally had put in and then shift. And this is exactly what Nelson suggested. Then tell the company, now I'm going to shift to taking policy loans for retirement income uh, because uh, loans are not taxable. Um, whether it's a HELOC or a signature loan or anything like that. So, yes, that's that's very true. You can research 7702, IRS tax code, tax code 7702, Google it. I think that's about as much as I feel comfortable saying on this right now because we're not tax experts. We're not giving tax advice on this. Um, but it's it's when you think about it, it's very logical. Uh, withdraw up to your cost basis, just like any financial tool, and then change over to loans. And you know that loans are not uh, a taxable event also. Yes. And then also, if the death benefit's paid out, so say you were paying into a policy, and now the death benefit is being paid out to whoever you've listed as a beneficiary, that is also income tax-free, the death mm-hmm. benefit. Yeah, so, absolutely. So that's how we talk about tax-free access. We're not really talking about tax-free I mean, we, you can talk about tax-free growth, but really, technically, the term is it's tax-deferred growth. Mm-hmm. You're able to access tax-free. I just want to make that clarification. Um, Dale is on Facebook and said great clarity on interest and dividends. So, Dale, thank you for listening live today. Thanks, and Yes. Um, all right. So, that is there. And we have, have one more question, and we still have time for this. Because there's some personal... in. Um, 
not very personal, but some numbers in this particular question. We're going to leave the name out, but I think the concept is something that will really help our listeners uh, to be able to think through infinite banking. So you may find yourself in the shoes of the person asking this question. He says, does this make sense to you? I'm not fully 100% sold on this infinite banking thing, but I'm thinking of starting a small policy to take it out for a test drive. Begin small, test it with loans and payback schedules, and see how it functions in a five to 10-year environment. I have a rental worth $650,000. It brings in around $27,000 in income per year, which is $2,300 per month. We own it free and clear. Would it make financial sense to set up a policy to run my yearly expenses through that policy? I figure I spend around $20,000 per year on expenses to include taxes, insurance, and future capital costs, and vacancy allowances. Thoughts on establishing a policy of around $20,000 max per year and maybe a $2,000 minimum premium in case we could not fully fund in extreme emergencies. The long view, five to 10 years, good idea. I'm not sure. And my wife is not sold on the idea either. Love to hear your thoughts since you understand the concept. We love this question. And I'm going to say a few things at the top here of answering this. One, I love the idea of starting small and getting some ground under your feet where you're not just listening and waiting until the perfect situation where you can fund with $100,000 or $500,000 of premium. Yet, if you're coming to knowledge of this concept and that's your cash flow situation, by all means, that's great. But if you are waiting for that windfall to be able to start something, don't wait. Get started with exactly where you are right now. It's absolutely perfect to start small. Bruce, you say take small steps, but quality steps. That would be a quality step. Um, So I'm just going to point that out here. I love that you brought in the idea that you and the wife may not be on the same page yet. And sometimes that does happen. And it's a very common situation where we would encourage you to both be on a call, both answer ask your questions because really, if you're making financial decisions with somebody else, you really do want to have their comfort level and their buy-in enough to not feel like you're going off the range and they're frustrated by the mismatch, the mismatch of priorities or understanding of what you're trying to accomplish. So really good pointing that out. And then um, Bruce, let's just go ahead and talk about the expense idea and the funding of the policy and kind of the concept that he's thinking. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it is possible to try to run expenses of like a rental uh, property through this. But I think the problem that I see people when they try to do this all the time is they don't capitalize at the very beginning enough before they start the process. So an example is if you put $20,000, um, I would say the, the lowest I would feel comfortable doing this is so that you had access to about $80,000. And there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, in our low, low, low interest rate environment, um, the base policy uh, gives, gives you most of the death benefit and the death benefit is, is used to determine dividends. So if interest rates go up, which I believe I personally believe they're going to go up in the next 30 years. I mean, I, I, I think as we can, we're seeing inflation right now, we're going to see the only way to, to slow down inflation is to raise interest rates. So if mm-hmm. the base policy is actually going to get you a higher percentage of, uh, when I say this, people, I've said this before and people have called me on this. 
I don't mean that you're going to get a higher uh, dividend percentage. What I mean is, is that because it has a higher ratio of base to uh, permanent death benefit, so that permanent death benefit is higher on the base, then you're going to get a higher dividend, a gross dividend in the future on that. Just it's it's just common math, and I can show you, I can show people. Maybe we should do this one day, Rachel. We should we should actually show people mm-hmm. on the podcast that this is true. Yes, you're still getting the five and a half percent or on the base and five and a half, but they calculate the gross what they actually pay um, on the death benefit, and the death benefit is higher on the base, so you're going to get a higher base death benefit. Mm-hmm. The other thing is. Although you're replacing the bank with this banking concept, and it's a banking concept, that's why they call it infinite banking concept, mm-hmm. so that you're taking the function of bank. It doesn't work as like a bank. So what I tell people all the time, you're not going to like put money in it every month and then take money out of it to pay for expenses, go back and forth, back and forth. That's an administrative nightmare. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is capitalize your bank over at least a year, maybe two, preferably three, before you start the concept. Then you're going to be able to take, and I actually had this uh, discussion with a person about a month ago, uh, then you would take a large amount of that cash value, you would put it into a separate bank account, and then you would start paying expenses like the insurance, the um, the maintenance, the um, broker fees out of that, and then take the rent and pay it back to your policy loans. That way, you're not doing it every you know month or every quarter. I think you ought to do it maybe every semi-annual because it's it, and and I'm glad he said he wants something simple. Mm-hmm. And his wife is, you want to keep this very simple. Um, or you won't complete it. And that's the part that I think is bad on the internet as people talk about these things all the time, but they do not realize that human nature means that if it's not simple, they're probably not going to complete the process. Mm, Absolutely. Bruce, I love that you shared the part about capitalizing over a span of time. You're saying ideally up to three years before you start the concept and meaning, meaning really infinite banking works best when you give it some running room before you start taking maximum loans. And so that doesn't mean you can't, but there's a temptation that we have as humans to say, well, give it all to me now as fast as possible. And I don't want to wait for anything. And what that can lead us to is funding as much as we can now, taking a maximum loan right away and running it as, as thinly or as as tightly as possible. And that is just not a good wealth practice to continue to maintain having cash in your control. Because at that point, you basically have, you still have the cash value growing, but you're just running it. Like I would say you're redlining the, the life insurance right, policy. Right. And, and that's the other thing he's, he mentioned about doing like a $2,000 base against the $20,000 premium, just oh, in mm-hmm. case you have some lean years. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that's why we take a full financial picture and we have a process we go through people. If, if, it's, if you're having to do this that lean, then you're putting yourself in danger of not making a 10% base policy, then you, are, you have the wrong instrument. You're building this way too, 
way too uh, way too big for you. What I would argue is if the the bigger the base, the bigger the the bigger the dividend, the longer uh, potential of long term growth. You actually have a lot more flexibility because you could use some of your cash value to pay the premium. You can use some of the dividend to pay the pre- premium. So there's a lot more flexibility um, when when you're trying to do that rather than just like you said, Rachel, running it razor thin or redlining and trying to keep up with it. So yeah, uh, I really like that you brought up that there's more than one way to pay the premiums, and right. you also said something really really key, Bruce. There and so again, paying base premium only and not the PUAs, that's one way to pay less than the full premium in a whole life policy. But you also can surrender dividends or you can um, use cash value to pay the the premium. And what you're saying, Bruce, is that if you take two steps back first and realize the more base I put in up front, the more opportunity I have to use dividends, which will be higher, and cash value to pay for the premium that I'm creating. So don't just think about what's best today, what feels least risky today, what feels least committal, if that's the right word to use here, like the smallest amount of commitment, but the biggest policy. Let's not think of it that way. Let's think about if you are committed to the concept, let's commit and let's commit at the level that really makes sense for you. And that means designing something with a big enough base to make sure we're supporting the long-term growth that's going to give you the best of everything in the future, not just tomorrow. And in closing, I don't think people, and I had this discussion yesterday or two days ago with a client who had an aha moment. I don't think people understand the power of the death benefit. Mm -hmm. People are always, and maybe we're guilty of this too, you know, cash value, cash value, cash value, utilization, utilization, utilization. The, the death benefit is leveraged up from your premium. The mm-hmm. death benefit actually gives you permission to actually try things uh, like rental property. It gives you permission to spend down other assets because you, then you know you can get those buckets filled back up uh, upon your graduation from this earth, as Nelson used to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had this, this epiphany, or a client had epiphanies like, well, I know my business is worth, you know, 15 to $20 million, but I'm mostly my business. I'm the, I'm the person that is the intellectual property. And so if I die right now, uh, it's like I built this big business that's worth 15 to $20 million. And because I'm mostly the business, it just goes away. Mm. And so the 15 to $20 million is the protection of his business valuation. and boy, we just do not value the death benefit very much. And that, that's a real shame. Yeah, it definitely is. And thank you for sharing that. I think that's eye-opening for anyone listening. And I personally know the value of the death benefit because we almost had to use my death benefit. And that gives me chills to think about. But we never know how long we're going to make it, how long we're going to be granted days on this planet. And life insurance is a powerful way to make sure that you're creating what you want for whatever happens after you. So we'll leave that there just because we need to wrap up today. Thank you for asking your questions. Thank you for engaging with the podcast and for letting us know what is on your mind. You can ask a question on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, 
send us an email at hello at the money advantage. You can even give us a call if you really want to. And our phone number is on the website at themoneyadvantage.com. We would love to hear what is on your mind because we'd love to answer those questions for you. Now, sometimes it makes sense to go ahead and book a call because your question is so specific to your situation that we can't answer it until we know your full financial picture. And we can't answer a question like, how exactly do I execute this for myself in my situation in a public format? I mean, we can try. You saw us do pretty well justice to some of these questions today, but often there's a much bigger picture behind the numbers. There's other financial assets. There's other income. There's other financial needs. There's other goals. There's there's timelines. There's your age. There's your... Um, whether your family is you're expecting an inheritance from them or not, whether you're insurable, the ages of your kids, what priorities you have for them. There's so much going on that we really need to have that full picture to be able to help you optimize your cash and be in the safest position in the widest range of circumstances and create the greatest legacy. So we would really invite you, if those are your type of questions, please go ahead and come over onto themoneyadvantage.com on that first, very first homepage you'll see a button where you can click to book on our calendar, get on our advisor calendar. And that just starts the conversation where we get to know you, you get to know us personally, we find out if it's a good working relationship and if we can help you accomplish your goals. So it's risk-free, I would say for you. Thank you so much for being with us on this conversation today. And we will be back next time with some more great information on the Money Advantage podcast. In closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.